what's up, View Journey? Grab those Bibles, devices, keep them open to Judges chapter 6 and 7. You can see from the length of the text today why I wanted someone else to do uh, the dirty work, the hard lifting. Uh, now I get to do the easy part, which is supposedly, anyway, unpack everything that we just read as we look at uh, really what we're kind of calling Gideon part two, if you will, uh, God's power, God's promises, and God's patience. Um, one of the most interesting things as we preach verse by verse, line by line, uh, through the book of Judges that we find is that many of the judges, uh, one of the things that they do, one of the functions that they serve is they tell us a lot about who Jesus will be and what Jesus will do. That is really their ultimate big picture point in the meta narrative. The big picture point of the Bible is to tell us who Jesus will be and what he will be like and what, what he will do. Uh, I would argue that Gideon is a bit different than the other judges in the sense that I think Gideon really tells us as much about who we are as the church <laughs> and, and what God will do uh, and has chosen to do uh, through people like us in the church. And I think the story of Gideon, if you were to read the whole thing at once, I think you'd be struck with the fact that uh, the story of Gideon is one uh, of human beings who have questions and doubts and weaknesses but I think what's more important than that is how God relates to Gideon how God chooses to use Gideon so it's not just a story of human beings who have doubts and questions and weaknesses but it's a story of a mighty God who uses chooses and uses people with doubts and questions and weaknesses and even uses what human beings think is weak to do the unimaginable the unprecedented the magnificent, all to the glory of his name. And he does it all in a way that is unmistakable. And when it's over, we know it is God who has done it. Right? That's really what the story of Gideon is about. Now, to understand the text that has been read to you today, I think you have to understand the relationship between God's power displayed in human weakness. And I think you have to understand the relationship between God's power displayed not just in human beings who are weak, but in the things that human beings see and view and understand to be weak. And so let's start right there with God's power really seen in the church. Because when I think of human weakness, when I think of things that other human beings think of as weak, the very first thing I think of is the church. <laughs> the church is weak, right? I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that as in reality, right? We are human beings. The church is made up of human beings with doubts, questions, and weaknesses. And when you think about the culture at large and how it sees the church, it sees it as really a weak thing. So let's talk about how God's power is seen in the human weakness and in the weakness of the church. Um, uh, and it's a strange thing to think, right, that power would put on or, or that weakness would put on display power. And I think the answer to that is how, how is that? How does weakness put on display power? Uh, I think power is most fully seen when it uses the weak to do the impossible. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go watch a Major League Baseball game, but if you ever get a chance to go, I highly recommend uh, you can leave in like the sixth inning. You know, baseball's pretty boring by and large. But if you ever get a chance to go, I do highly recommend that you go watch batting practice because that's really where the action is because you get to see the power and the ability of these guys when there's not somebody up there, you know, throwing 95 miles an hour. I, I, go watch these Major League power hitters hit home runs. They have a wooden bat and the ball and the bat cracks and the ball sails deep into the cheap seats. It's amazing to watch their power. Well, what if that same home run hitter was able to hit the ball just as far with a plastic wiffle ball bat? Well, what about a pool noodle, right? 
Wouldn't that put on display their power in a way that left you more and all? Now, here's the crazy thing. They're no more powerful. Their power is their power. It's just that by using a wiffle ball bat or by using a pool noodle, you're actually able to see and admire and be sort of stand in awe at the totality of their power that you couldn't have seen any other way. Right? When someone can use what is weak to do what should not be able to be done, their power is seen to its fullest extent. And I think this is why we read uh, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. He writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Uh, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. That would be the Corinthian church, the people that were there. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I think what Judges 6 and what Paul's writing in Corinthians makes it really clear to us that God glories to, bring, to use nobodies to bring to nothing the somethings of this world. And all of this is to the glory of his name. Uh, what Paul writes to the church, he says basically, hey, look around, guys. Like I can say this to you, like look around, brothers and sisters, right? There's no pro athletes. There's no politicians. There's no power brokers among us. It's just plain old us, right? It's just plain old us. And that is glorious to God who uses and loves to use what is low and despised. And, and Paul writes, even things that are not, and the Greek word there may be really, in my opinion, even better translated as nothing. <laughs> he used to love, he, he, he loves to use the nothings, the nobodies of this world to bring to nothing the somebodies of this world who think they're something. Right? This is how God operates. You think about Gideon, like if you really go back and read the story of Gideon, like especially the first couple of verses, you'll realize Gideon is really an odd choice to deliver Israel. First off, he's a coward. Second off, he's a criticizer. And by his own admission, when the angel of the Lord comes to him, he says, I am a nobody from a nothing family in a nobody town. Why is God choosing me? He's an odd choice. Ah, oh, but he's perfect. Oh, but he is perfect. It's precisely because of his nothingness, right? God looks down from heaven and he says, who can I send to deliver Israel? And he sees Gideon cowering in fear from the Midianites and openly uh, criticizing God for not doing something about it. And he says, he's perfect. He's perfect. I want him. And the reason why is because what the world says is last, God uses to win first. <laughs> Gideon's the last person we would pick. But God chooses what is last to make sure he always wins first. God doesn't pick teams the way we would, right? I had a little joke in here about getting picked first and last, and I realized that for some of you that's still really raw from your childhood. I don't want to send you running to therapy this week, okay? 
right? But, but God doesn't pick teams the way we would. He doesn't look for the brightest and best in their field. He doesn't care about charisma and courage. He's not impressed with last names and family heritage. God looks over humanity and he chooses the last people anybody would expect. And he doesn't do it at the end when all the winners and the warriors have been chosen. He chooses them first. When you are the very last person that anybody would expect for God to choose and use, I have a warning, watch out. <laughs> because you are probably going first overall in God's draft and batting leadoff tomorrow night, right? After all, Jesus said that in the kingdom of God, the first are last and the last are first. And as I look around, brothers and sisters, I see a bunch of Gideons, the last people anybody would ever expect for God to use to do the mighty, the miraculous, and the glorious. You are nothing special, which is exactly what makes you special. <laughs> right? The world would pick you last, which is why God picks you first. And your nothingness makes you the perfect tool in the hands of God who loves to show off how straight and how far he can hit it with crooked sticks like us. His power is seen more perfectly in our weakness. So listen, my first encouragement to you today would be to be a nobody. Just be a nobody. Come to the Savior, Jesus, who looked down from heaven, still looks down from heaven, and when you are at your worst, at the height of your nothingness, on your worst of days when the sin in your heart is just running wild, and he says, I want him. I want her. Give them to me. I choose them first. So Gideon starts out pretty timid, but as we read through our text, as we kind of jump into what's going on in our text, he clearly does not stay timid. Well, how does this happen? Well, Gideon goes from being timid to being a warrior, basically the same way we do. He becomes clothed in the power of God as he was filled by the Spirit of God. So let's sort of work through some of the things that we see here in this text. And I think the first thing we want to note is God's promises to Gideon and how those mirror and match God's promises to us as the church. The first thing that God calls Gideon to do is to tear down the altar of Baal. And he does, but he does it under the cover of darkness out of fear. And the very next day, his kinfolk and his townfolk, uh, they call Gideon's dad to essentially take him to the woodshed for turning their altar into a pile of wood. And Gideon's dad uh, declines and he says, Hey guys, if Baal is really as big and bad and everything that we think he is, let him contend with Gideon. Let him defend his honor. And if he doesn't, then maybe we'll know that there's nothing to this Baal guy after all. Right? And he even, uh, Joash, Gideon's dad, uh, he, he thinks his boy can take Baal. Um, and, and I think this is reminiscent of the fact that the father knew that his son could take on hell at the cross and emerge victorious. And Gideon is given a new name, Jerubbabel. Um, terrible nickname, but that's the name he's given. And, and it means he who contends with Baal. And I think we could even imply he who contends with Baal and prevails. And it's eerily similar, similar to what Jesus named his church in Matthew 16, 19, when he named them those who would contend against the gates of hell, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Right? I mean, this, this is incredible. Gideon battled Baal and won, and, and, and he had to be because he does it under the cover of darkness. He had to be scared and unsure of himself, but he did what God said, and in the end, Baal could not prevail against him. Well, the church, friends, is called to battle hell. 
I mean, that's the war we fight. That's the battle we fight. And it's scary, and it leaves us unsure of ourselves. And certainly the task is too much for us. But we have been called, just like Gideon, to plunge ahead in obedience, and we can be sure, we can be confident that hell cannot, will not be able to prevail against us because as God was with Gideon, God is with his church as it launches its assault against the gates of hell. The battle was won with Baal, but that wasn't the last battle that Gideon fights in the text. Um, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of tearing down the altar of Baal, Gideon is clothed with the Holy Spirit because he had more battles to fight, and to fight those battles he would need to be clothed in armor. And so it's interesting that when Gideon is clothed with the armor of God, it's not really the armor we would expect. Rather, he is clothed in the Holy Spirit for battle. A new harvest season comes, and the Midianite raiders, they show up once again to steal the crops of Israel. Um, and God does not dress Gideon really in armor for his next battle, but rather he clothes him with the power of God, what we would call the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to me, you think, well, man, that's, that's kind of backwards on God's part. Why would he not give Gideon at least a sword or a gun or, or a shield to at least, you know, fend off an attack? Well, because God's already won the battle with Midian. That battle was already won. God didn't need Gideon in order to defeat Midian, right? The next battle that was really happening here is really on the inside of Gideon. So he doesn't give Gideon actual weapons, but spiritual ones, because the upcoming battle for Gideon was not with Midian as much as it was about would he listen to the voice of God or would he listen to the voice in his head which told him that God could not be trusted. Would he give in to fear or would he walk by faith? It's a spiritual battle. And so God gives Gideon spiritual weapons. The same battle is fought by all believers each day as we wake up. There's an enemy. He's ready to take us down. And the battle is this. Will we listen to the voice of God when he says that he loves us, he'll take care of us, and he wants what's best for us? Or will we listen to the liar, the father of life, Satan, when he whispers to us, God doesn't love you. Nobody could ever love you. Nobody would ever really be willing to always in every circumstance take care of you and do what's best for you. What voice are you going to listen to? Right? That's a spiritual battle. We need, we need to fight that battle with spiritual weapons. And so God has gifted us spiritual weapons with which to fend off our enemy. Paul lays these out, this arsenal, if you will, at our disposal in the spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. You can read those on your own. But God didn't give Gideon a sword, right? Because Gideon didn't need a sword. He needed the Spirit of God. And God gave him just what he needed. And every believer in Christ is gifted with this very same Spirit in our battle. The Spirit that clothes us, that covers us, that envelops us in the power and protection of God. Now, it wouldn't be totally fair to say that Gideon didn't have any weapon because he did have a bit of a weapon, but it's sort of a, a strange weapon. It's a trumpet. And as Israel was gathered to Gideon for a decisive battle at the blow of a trumpet, it reminds me that so will the church be gathered to Christ for a decisive battle at the blow of a trumpet. So this is Gideon's weapon of choice, a trumpet. Now, I got to be honest with you, unless Gideon is intending to challenge Midian to a like marching band standoff, I don't know that this is a great weapon for battle, right? Uh, he blows the trumpet, though. And Israel gathers to him for war with their enemies. And it reminds me that one day that we will hear the trumpet sound. 
Friends, we will hear the trumpet sound and it will set off a chain of events unlike anything this world has ever seen. Christianity believes, but we don't just believe it. We believe it because the Bible declares it, right? That when the great trumpet blows, Christ will appear and all those who are truly born again will be gathered to him to wage war with him on his behalf and overthrow his enemies forever in the valley of Armageddon. Now, Gideon blows his trumpet and just like with Christ, a huge force of people are gathered to him. And, and just as you read the text, you must think, man, man, Gideon, what a shot of courage, what a shot of conviction that, that Gideon must have got from that gesture and from this throng of troops. But then the very next thing we read is, nope. In fact, it isn't long before Gideon struggled with fear and insecurity begins to rear its ugly head once again. And, and when we get to the section with the fleece and, and, uh, and God telling Gideon to go down and listen to the soldiers of Midian, it's a great reminder of God's patience, right? God's patience with the church. Now, Gideon asks for a sign. He gets nervous, right? And he wants this sign. He wants God to make a fleece wet and the dry ground it uh, to be dry. The very next morning, God does. And then when you get to verse 39 of, of chapter 6, you begin to sort of even sense that in Gideon's voice, uh, he realizes he's starting to push it a little bit, right? And he asks God, well, let's do it the other way around, right? And, and God does. Now, I think Gideon and his fleece, if you've grown up in the church, if you didn't, you are in the right place. We start a new journey to reach the unchurched, dechurched, and hurt by church. So you are in the right place. But if you grew up in the church, you may have heard about Gideon and his fleece. And it is a quite misunderstood story. Uh, I think it's important to say that what Gideon does here is not pious, and it's certainly not prescriptive, meaning that every single time a believer, a follower of Christ, wants to be sure you know, that, that really God's telling them to do something, we shouldn't ask God for a sign before we are actually obedient to Him. We want to be careful about that. Remember that when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees for a sign to prove that He really was God in the human flesh, if you remember, He told them they wouldn't get any sign, and then He called them a wicked and adulterous generation. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for asking God for signs. They weren't on each other's Christmas card list right after that moment, right? God's power uh, to make a wool blanket wet, uh, the ground dry kind of around it, and vice versa. Let's just be honest. It's not very surprising. Like if we were to create a top ten list of God's miracles that put on display His power throughout the Scripture or throughout world history, I don't think this would be on anybody's list. It's pretty benign and pedestrian, just to be honest. The shocking part of God's activity in the passage is His patience. His patience with Gideon, not His power. Because I think this is the focus of the passage. It's God's patience with Gideon and with people like us who despite God's repeated intervention and showing up in mighty, miraculous ways in our life, we continue over and over and over again to ask God for assurances and reaffirmations that we really are on the right track, that He really is real, that we really are born again, that He really hasn't forgotten about us, right? That, that's who we are. That's who Gideon is. God is patient with Gideon. He never chastises Gideon. He never corrects Gideon. He never sighs in frustration. Notice God's activity in the text. He just simply does what Gideon asks. Because he knows Gideon needs that reassurance. Well, as God was patient with Gideon, because Gideon was made of dust, 
God is patient with us too. He never forgets that we're made of dust, even if we do. <laughs> even if we do. We're the ones. Let's just be honest. We're the ones who expect more from Gideon. We're the ones who expect more from ourselves. We're the ones who are surprised by our fragility and our weakness and our cowardice. God's not. He's not surprised. As Psalm chapter 103 Verses 13 and 14 say, As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers we are but made of dust. Right? Yes, I get it. We are quick to quit on Christ, to run away from what God has called us to do, but God is patient with us because his patience is just like his mercy and his grace. They are inexhaustible because Patience is not something God has. It's something He is. It's part of His nature. So He has a reserve and a reservoir of patience that never runs dry. Praise God, there's more patience in Him than there is sin and weakness and questions and doubts in us. Amen. I'm not as patient as God. Uh, I was a head football coach in the state of Mississippi for a long time. Patience is not a virtue in that profession. <laughs> right? When you think of a football coach, you think of foaming at the mouth, vein in the forehead, screaming at somebody, right? I, I'm not naturally a very patient man. I'm certainly not patient with others, and I'm probably worse with myself. I'm not patient with myself. I am easily angered, easily done with myself, and I very often assume God must be sitting in heaven feeling the same way about me too. Oh, but he remembers something that I forget. He knows my frame. He remembers that I am made of dust and that dust by its very nature is weak and feeble and easily blown away. You go to the beach and you build sandcastles, but you don't go back the next day and plan to move in there. Right? And you're not shocked when it's no longer there because it's made of sand. It's not supposed to last, right? Why do you stay so surprised that sinners struggle with sin? And that as fallen people, you and others still fall down sometimes. And that as broken people, Every once in a while, we still break into a million pieces. Why is that so surprising? You're made of dust. It may surprise us as the church, but it doesn't catch God off guard. Yes, he has clothed us in the Holy Spirit, but we are made of dust, and he never forgets it, even if we do. Now, the next reassurance that God gives to, to, to Gideon is in the run-up to the battle with Midian and he reassures him again. This time Gideon doesn't even ask for it. Uh, more than likely, Gideon had a, a bad case of uh, you know, pregame jitters, right? And, and he's probably he's in the bathroom puking his guts up, you know what I mean? Like he doesn't know what this is about to be. And so God seeks to comfort Gideon and he comforts him, not just with his patience, but this time with, with prophecy. And we have this very same gift of grace. He tells Gideon to go down and listen to the army of Midian, Midian and he goes and he hears them talking about how scared they were of Gideon because God was with Gideon and had already given Midian into his hand. And in these moments, Gideon is getting a sneak peek into the future. And, and really what he's getting is he's getting to hear and see what God already knows. Right? 
That's really what prophecy is. We're getting to hear and see what God already knows. It's a gift of grace. It's meant to encourage and reassure those who are waging war on behalf of God that God's already got everything taken care of despite how things might look at the moment. I mean, we have this very same gift in the prophetic literature of the Word of God. Now, I'm just going to be straight up with you. I am not the biggest fan of prophetic literature in the Bible, right? Um, speculation uh, about the things we don't know for sure, it, it runs rampant and it tends to ruin the fact that while we don't know every single thing about every single thing that God will do in the future, we do know the main thing that God will do in the future when Christ returns and calls His church to Himself, right? But sometimes the fact is we need to read that God already has the future mapped out. We, just need, we need to do that. We need to read it again and remind ourselves God already has the future mapped out. We have our doubts and God is patient with us in them, but God never has any doubts about where everything is going. <laughs> He's not worried. He knows the future. And here's why He knows the future, because biblical prophecy is not predictive and it's not speaking in probabilities. The weatherman makes predictions. Gamblers work off probabilities. God makes promises because he's the only one sovereign enough to make sure that whatever he says comes to pass. Right? God's not making predictions. That's not what prophecy is. Listen, things may look bleak and we may be weak, but God's not worried. He's not worried about where this is all headed. Now, the fact is, it's in these moments with the fleece and with having to be reassured by hearing the dreams of Midian that we reach this point where it's like, hey, we understand that, but man, we were hoping Gideon would be a hero. And he's not quite who we wish he would be just yet. Well, there's good news. Neither are we. <laughs> right? Neither are we. And God is patient with Gideon on his journey as God is patient with each of us as we journey. And sometimes I think we forget this as believers. We forget where we were when God found us when God rescued us and delivered us. And sometimes we get so focused on the fact that we're not there yet that we forget to look around and see how far it is that God has actually brought us since we first met him. Right? God is patient. He's patient with Gideon on his journey. He's patient with us on our, Gideon, on, on, on our journey as well as he shapes and conforms us by his grace. Now, Gideon isn't there yet. It's sort of the next growth curve, if you will, growth moment for Gideon is for God to strip away everything that Gideon might be tempted to trust in other than God himself. And so this is where we start to see God's praise soar from using the church. Now, this army that Gideon amasses, um, it's not exactly a bunch of Navy SEALs on steroids, right? Uh, many of them are scared to death. Uh, according to Hebrew law in the book of Deuteronomy, they were to be given the opportunity to go home if they were too scared to fight. Right? They had to answer the call, but they didn't have to stay if they were too scared. Most of them take advantage of it. You, they didn't have to have two shots to opt out. You know what I mean? They're done. Now, Gideon looks at his shrinking force, and, and you get the sense that, that he thinks, well, you know, these reduced numbers, it'll be tough, but you know, we'll be okay. So Gideon sees their numbers, and he sees a problem. Well, God looks at their number, and he sees a problem too, just a different one than Gideon. Gideon worries that they don't have enough. God says, you still got way too many, yeah. right? Now, God intends to get glory. This is important. If you're going to understand 
how they whittle this down and why they do it. God intends to get glory from the defeat of Midian. And he he's going to do this in a way. He's going to make sure that when the victory is won, no one is confused about who it is that gets the MVP trophy. Right? Uh, man is by his nature a glory robber. We are made in the image of a God who desires glory in all things and is determined to have glory in all things. So you give man a chance, he will pat himself on the back and shine the spotlight on himself every single time. We are glory thieves and we do not need much of a reason to credit ourselves with what God alone has done and what God alone could have even gotten done. Right? Now the key verse in this section is verse 2 where God tells in verse chapter 7, verse 2, where God says he plans to make a mockery of Midian and he plans to do it in a way where he leaves no doubt about who it is that did it. And this whole scene where some kneel and sip and others bow and lap the water has really been overanalyzed in my opinion. We've, we've tried to figure out what the virtue in one is and what the problem with the other is. There's no virtue in sipping and there's no sin in lapping. This was just simply the mechanism that God uses to thin the numbers of Israel so that when victory finally comes, Israel will say, to you alone, O God, do we give the credit and the glory. If 300 people had lapped instead of sipped, they would have been chosen instead. The point was to get it to 300, right? It's not why these 300 were chosen. The point was to get it to 300. They were chosen precisely because they were weak. If God intends to get the glory and make sure that no human being could ever take it from him, why would he choose? Because we've turned this thing, well, they did this, and that made them, you know, they were the ultimate warriors in Israel. Well, why would God choose them if he intends to use what is weak and make sure he gets the glory? Wouldn't he choose the knuckleheads? Right? Those who weren't prepared for battle? And by the way, they don't fight the battle with weapons. So why do you need warriors? Right? They blow trumpets. You need musicians. Right? They were chosen because they were weak. These were um, the original 300. Some of you have seen the movie. You may not be familiar with Leonidas's 300 Spartans at the Pass of Thermopylae, but uh, Leonidas's 300, Jacob, if you show that picture, they, they probably looked like this. Gideon's 300 probably looked more like Nacho Libre. <laughs> These are the soldiers he's leading into battle. <laughs> Listen, as Gideon and his army were chosen because of their weakness, so is the church. So is the church. Gideon's weak in the dream of the Midianites. If you remember, he was represented by what? A loaf of bread. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a symbol that strikes fear into the hearts of your opponents. <laughs> right? A loaf of bread. It's easily... Uh, bruised, it breaks easily, it's soft, it's squishy. Battles are won with bombs, not bread, right? But God is able to crush his enemies with a loaf of bread and the blast of a trumpet. And they win the battle with trumpets and, and in modern vernacular we would say flashlights and clay pots. It's all they had according to verse 8. These were unconventional and unexpected weapons to say the least. And, and just to sort of try and get your mind wrapped around what happens here is Gideon's victory over the Midianites is essentially winning the Super Bowl with the trombone section of the marching band and the bass player from Coldplay. Right? That's who you took into the Super Bowl and somehow you win. God wins his war not with weapons 
but rather with what looks weak. You say, man, I, I just I don't see how. Well, friends, if you can't believe what happened with Gideon, you, won't, you really won't believe what happened at the cross. Because wars with cosmic supernatural powers are not one with a cross. And yet that's exactly what happened. Now the cross has come to mean many things to many of us. Christians overall probably see it as a symbol of hope and triumph. But we forget that it was not so when Jesus was crucified on it. It was meant not just to kill but to torture and to humiliate. You were stripped naked. You were killed over a period of days very slowly. You were mocked. The Romans meant it not just a means of death but of deterrence. The idea was people would see that and go, I don't know what that guy did but I'm never going to do it because I don't want to die that way. It was meant to humiliate and yet God does the impossible and he takes the thing that is meant by men to make other men look small and insignificant and puny and weak and somehow he wins the war for eternal glory and the fate of mankind with it and then he turns it, he turns it into now being a universal symbol of hope and his power. Right? His power is most fully seen when he uses what is weak to make the impossible look routine and defeat his enemies in a rout. Gideon is that weak instrument in Judges 6 and 7 as the cross of Christ is in the gospel. Gideon is a loaf of bread from God. Jesus calls himself the bread of life who has come from God. Gideon is weak and Christ is not weak but the cross makes him look weak. And Gideon is weak and so is the ragtag bunch he leads. And Christ looks weak and so do the ragtag bunch he leads the church. <laughs> Right? So let's finish up with this. As God used lights and clay pots to defeat his enemies with Gideon, that's the same way he's still waging war today with his enemies. Gideon uses these clay jars with lights hidden within them as his weapon. Um, God uses the church as his weapon, who Paul refers to as clay pots. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, this is where Paul writes this. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now the treasure that we have that Paul mentions there in verse 7 is what he's referencing in verse 6, which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the treasure. This is the light that we have, right? And it's found in clay pots. Paul compares us to clay pots. And we don't probably get this because we don't live in a first century world. He's talking about toilets. These are jars that would have been used to collect excrement. And Paul says we are porta potties full of the stench of sin. And the last thing you expect to discover when you go into a porta potty is treasure. Right? And yet that's exactly what we find within the truly born again. We find the most valuable item anyone could ever possess. The knowledge of Jesus Christ that springs from a relationship with him. God uses his church. Clay pots. That's who the church is. Clay pots with the light of Christ on the inside of him as his weapon. And he promises that the gates of hell will not be able to stop him. So how is it then that the church can wage war with hell? Well, the same way Gideon's, did, Gideon's army did. First, we sound the trumpet of the gospel. We sound the trumpet of the gospel by sharing it. And we offer ourselves to be broken in service to God so that the light within us 
the light deposited, the light of Christ that has been deposited within us will shine and be seen and be used by God to draw others unto himself. We must let the light of Christ shine. And oh, our light may be little, but what big things God can do when we let our little light shine. We are his weapon. Offer yourself to him. Ask him to break you so that the light of Christ might shine and the goodness and the grace of God might draw many other men unto himself. Dave and Ban, y'all come on up. God's choice of a weapon is very strange, shocking. Honestly, it looks stupid, right? Trumpets and flashlights and clay jars, a cross, the church, me, you, who would choose us? Who would choose us? I mean, if I was starting a team that I wanted to use to build a kingdom, I wouldn't choose any of you. And I wouldn't choose me. And yet we've been chosen. And we've been called. God uses what is weak and stupid and silly to the world. And as Paul wrote, he uses it to bring down to nothing those who think that they are something and somebody. He promises that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against his church. He can rescue anyone, friends. I'm begging you to see that. He can reach anywhere. You say, that there's no way, man. There's no way God would choose me. There's no way God would choose to use me. I'm telling you, there's nowhere he can't reach. There's nowhere he can't go. You are not beyond the power of God to find, to redeem, to reconcile you unto himself. You may think that you are the very last person in the world that God would ever want because you think that you're a nobody, but that means you're exactly who God wants and who Christ came to save and redeem. Nobodies. Nobody's who he chooses and uses so that the fullness of his glory and his goodness and his power might be seen precisely in our nothingness and in our weakness. I pray that wherever you are today, you'll respond. If you're a believer, I pray that you'll submit yourself and say, God, break me for the sake of your glory. Use me for the sake of your glory. Stop coming up with all the reasons why you can't and that he can't use you just submit yourself to him. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, my greatest prayer today is that you will settle that before you leave the room. The world may throw you away, but God didn't throw people away. The world may say, you're the last person I would pick. God says, you're the first person I came for. Respond to Christ. He loves you. And the cross is the objective proof of it. If you want to talk about how to do that, come and see me in the back of the room as the band leads us in the time of response.